Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk Talking. I'm Cheryl. And I'm Sherry. And today, we're going to talk about the big one, the money, the dollars, the funding. We've talked about so many things in all of our different podcasts, but we can hear in the background all of you out there going, yeah, that'd be great if we had enough money. That'd be great if we had enough money. Well, today we're actually going to tackle that topic, and we actually think we have some ideas for solutions. Why do we need the money? That's a good question. That's the first one. Again, it gets back to, it's an ethical question. What do children who have communication disorders deserve? Do they deserve the same education as everybody else gets, and they can either deal with it or not? Or do they deserve an appropriate education that addresses their needs? And, of course, that's what we believe, is they deserve an appropriate education. And if we're committed to that, my thinking is that, like the U.S., then we should be prepared to show that commitment by putting it into law. So right now, children in Saskatchewan have a right to an education. But my question is, do they have a right to a free and appropriate education? Because I feel like if we don't have it enshrined in law, children with communication disorders in Saskatchewan will never receive the appropriate service. Um, or, or learning issues, not just communication disorders. Yes, but yeah, yes. Any issues. Yes, any kind yeah. of learning issues. And again, the reason I feel like it should be enshrined in law is because then it wouldn't be subject to the whims of political swings or funding cuts or reprioritization or whatever. I absolutely agree that, yeah, the um, beyond just hoping that individuals with communication disorders could have... Um, access to intervention because i think we both think that way the bottom line is in saskatchewan it seems that decision makers do not understand and are not educated in the link between communication disorders uh, specifically more developmental language disorders and phonological awareness development to literacy and they are very very focused on literacy and rightly so Uh, i think when i looked up recently looked up the definition of literacy it says it's a continuum of learning and proficiency in reading writing and using numbers throughout life and is part of a larger set of skills which include digital skills media literacy education for sustainable development and global citizenship as well as job specific skills so for society's sake we know that we would like to educate people and we want them to be literate and have the best literacy development that they possibly could have for the world's benefit. And so if we back it up again, if children are struggling to develop literacy skills and they are in Saskatchewan, then we're hoping that we could find a way to make those people who are doing the decision-making understand and support the development of communication skills as underpinning foundational skills. So to me, remediation and the identification and remediation rather of foundational oral communication skills is the answer. It's it's what we need to do. And so that's why we need to spend the money. That's That's why we need the money. (laughs) That's exactly right. So 
how much money is required? When I've been in the schools before, or even in health, people always say, well, how many SLPs would be enough SLPs? And that's not the question. The question is, how many children, if you're in education, have communication disorders? What types of disorders do they have? And what amount of intervention would be sufficient to remediate those disorders, to give them those foundational skills so that they can become literate? And then how many children are currently receiving appropriate best practice services? How many children have difficulties in literacy? And how many have appropriate programming currently? What are the provincial outcomes, for example? Do we ha I don't know that we have any provincial outcomes. That would be fantastic if we did. And what yeah, we need that data. We yes, that's yeah. where we need the data, right? Yeah, the to data, know how much the data. We need. And what is being measured? So what I feel like is what is currently being measured are literacy outcomes. They look at literacy strategy or program that they're using and then they use it and then they measure the outcome. What that's like to me is if you're measuring make the success of making a cake. But the only thing you're measuring are the last two things. And the last two things are how much time are you baking the cake for and what is the temperature that you're baking the cake. And then you just keep changing those two things. Maybe we bake it for 35 minutes. Maybe we bake it at 250. Maybe we bake it at 350. Maybe, And you just keep changing those two things. But you don't look at that foundational ingredient that you need, which is the flour. And maybe... Sometimes you have a teaspoon of flour. Sometimes you have two cups. Sometimes you don't have flour at all. You have chalk. That flour is the foundation, and we, we never look at that. We're never measuring that. We're just looking at those last two items. So then we don't get a, a consistent cake that we can go, oh, this is great. This is a great cake. And I think we could get it if we, if we were measuring the right things and then addressing those things, obviously. So. And an example of that in my own experience was we did do phonological awareness testing and language testing, and we did have that data. And we would show in the interventions we'd done that and even graphed it and showed that the children would be here with their phono awareness skills, and now we've improved them tremendously. And the same thing with language. We would show that we did move children's language abilities and move their skills up, but they were so delayed that that still did not bring children's reading up to the point where they should be for their grade. But we could never get them, you know, the province wasn't looking at that, and we couldn't get our leadership either to, to focus and go, you know, we made these tremendous improvements in these foundational skills, even though it's not reflected in reading. And that's that's your cake analogy, right? Right. So our experience is that this information isn't readily available. And if it is available somewhere, speech language pathologists are not part of that level of governance. And we absolutely positively need quality universal screening. We need to identify the need before we determine what the resources are that we need to meet that need. And so, for example, we're aware of some periodic, sporadic screening programs that are going on around the province. And in, in one school uh, recently, they were able to do a screening program with grades one and two, and they looked at hearing, speech sounds, phonological awareness, language, social communication, fluency, which is stuttering, and voice. And now they have 
they have it. They have all that information and they can plan and they can go from there. They can determine which kids now need an assessment, which kids would be a, a lower priority, would maybe need a, a tier one or a tier two intervention. So, yes, you can determine then from that what the resources, the professional resources are, the speech pass time or the, the what interventions you might need to buy. or you, you, That is your foundation to determining how much money you need. Right. So where should the money come from? Well, we could say perhaps it should come from education. Because some money already does come from education to provide speech and language. And the problem is they just obviously, that is our barrier over the years is, well, you're not going to have a speech path in every school. You're not going to, because we, we can't afford that. Well, rather than looking at, well, we have you know, all these children we want you to see, and there are hundreds and hundreds of them, um, but we don't have the money for it. And that's been since we ever started in our field. There's never been enough money, ever. (laughs) Ever. Obviously, health provides some funding, but the issue with health is, for example, they're seeing the preschool children, but they're also tasked with seeing adults. So anyone in the province who's had a stroke or a head injury, who has an oral cancer, any of those people are trying to access services through health as well. And as a result, the model is that the health speech language pathologist first of all they have long waiting lists but they also once they get a child in for an assessment then they only see them for quote-unquote therapy twice a month that is wholly insufficient to make any any progress with a preschool child and you and I've talked about this that because preschool services are sort of half umbrellaed under education and half under health for kids who are at risk because you know education does have at risk um, pre the pre Ks um, for children who say who are diagnosed with um, something uh, like for example Down syndrome and we know they are at risk then they kind of fall under they can fall under education but then there are pre K programs the speech paths are uh, providing services to that fall under health and so it probably would be a much better model and flow of services if education would take that aspect out of health services and, and pre-k services for communication disorder children be under education yeah from the i think yeah it needs to all be under one umbrella so that it's much more seamless and and kids can get the the services that they need for sure quickly before we started today i took a look at the the speech language permanent full-time jobs that are available in the province. There are eight jobs currently listed in health, and they're in the five major centres in Saskatchewan, Regina, Saskatoon, Prince Albert, North Battleford, and Moose Jaw. In the public schools, there are zero positions. And what that says to me is that there's inequity and in, in inequity in wages and benefits. I guess basically SLPs see the education jobs as more fulfilling than the health jobs yes as far as where the money should come from health and education are the two governmental overseers of the services at the moment and we need to make sure that that money the money that they are providing is utilized in the very best model well i was just going to say jordan's principle to me is one of the best avenues that we can look to 
for funding. I can't tell you what a difference it has made. I work in a remote northern community in Ontario, and using Jordan's principal funding, they were able to hire three speech-language pathologists, four occupational therapists, a physiotherapist, and eight assistants as well. And maybe just in, in a really quick nutshell, just for the people who are listening who don't know what that is, approximately, would it be six years ago or maybe, six or seven maybe years even ago? Maybe even longer. The, gov- yeah. the government did come forth with money. Through, the federal, uh, federal, of, it's uh, federal money. It was federal federal dollars and it was in the name of a boy named Jordan who did not receive appropriate services and so the funding was set up in his memory and it provides services to help Aboriginal children close the gap in the services they do not receive and it could be any sort of service right can be health or education yeah would that be yeah, that's right. And so and yeah, and so you can write an individual grant for a a child who needs maybe some simple speech therapy or you can have a, a bigger grant for a whole community or you know a child that needs some expensive equipment that's available as well. And it's just made such a difference. And my frustration with Jordan's principal has been that at least Two school divisions that I know of have utilized the federal funding, accessed the federal funding to provide additional speech and language services for kids, but then have dropped it. And one of the reasons that they've given for dropping it is because, well, I'll give you two reasons. One is it's too hard to administer. And I can't understand that because writing the grant, it's a one or two page grant. It's not difficult. Uh, It only has to be done once a year. And then the other thing that they've said is that they don't want to set up the expectation that children will continue to receive this service should this federal money disappear. And of course, my thinking is, well, at least some kids would get some service during the time that it's available. It seems unconscionable to me that money would be available to provide a service and a school division chooses not to provide it. Yes, again, because then they are the barrier. Right. They're the barrier because they won't apply. Right? Mm-hmm. But I think, again, in all fairness to the, the people that have been organizing and trying to deliver the Jordan's principal funds, that it's been an, an incredible learning curve for them. It was something that had not been. And again, it's it's trying to evaluate and determine that you are dispersing the money as it's intended. And I don't think those guidelines were very tight. And I think they've had a, a, a lot of difficulty. And of course, they got overloaded immediately with the staffing they had. So yeah, I would tip my hat to the people who have, you know, established Jordan's principle in these early years, because yeah, it's I'm sure it's been a very difficult job for them. So uh, again, where should the money come from? Well, we're saying you know education, health, and then of course Jordan's principle. And the other one that we were thinking about was as a possibility or something to to throw out to the listeners and see what you thought. But maybe it's time to establish a formal charitable organization or a foundation. And an example of kind of why I thought that modeler, Cheryl, and I talked about it was because, you know, when health has not been able to have enough money for 
to for the hospitals and they established the foundations then to to provide capital uh, funds and it's been adjunctive you know money that they're trying to get from the public <laughs> and that they have been quite successful if there are never going to be more funds through health or education maybe it's time to look at could a formal charitable organization be established that could then provide funding and then the other thing that we had talked about is there are quite a few organizations like the Down Syndrome Society, Autism Society, Learning Disabilities, Stuttering Groups, Hearing Impairment Groups, and they're all really obviously highly linked to communication disorders, but they're all very small groups for the most part, and perhaps if they could somehow get together, there might be some funding available there. They, they may or may not want to do that. And then there are... I, oh, go ahead. I think through that went in is to say that, you know, that is maybe in other instances, if there was a real major group and, and there were numbers, right, that those interest groups can establish themselves and, and be uh, funding providers. But because they're all split up into small groups, that's maybe not as achievable but we did put it in there that you know that would be like for example the learning disabilities association or or any of those that if they did a fundraiser you know maybe it could go to a fund an ultimate fund for children who can't access communication interventions and then we thought of private groups so for example you know a large company like coca-cola which we don't have in saskatchewan but we do have oil and we do have potash industries and maybe they would be willing to fund i don't know positions or a program or something like that or we have charitable foundations that already do provide help for kids with communication disorders like the elks i think the kinsman has in certain instances as well and there are so at the barbershop people very yeah active but there are other organizations, perhaps the Rotary Clubs or the Rough Riders or somebody uh, might be willing to come forward with some funding as well. You never know unless you ask. (laughs) (laughs) No, exactly. And again, when you're looking to where should we get money from beyond the public dollar, the tax dollar, then where are we going to find this funding? And well, I... Cheryl and I have talked about this for a lot of years, but I had an opportunity to work in South Carolina, and and during the time that I was there, they did not have lottery within their state. They didn't allow it. And then they did bend or break or whatever you want to call it, and they did decide to have lottery within their state. And the wonderful part about their lottery, all the proceeds go to education. Yes. So you can imagine all of the the funding that's being um, generated, you know, including casinos or whatever. It all went to education. So they have a lot of dollars. And they, of course, then they have the budgets to have the interventions that they require. So I, I don't see why, if at some point they established the lottery guidelines through legislation or whatever, however it was done in the originally was done by some people who made a decision and why can't that decision be not necessarily changed i mean the lotteries that exist now could still be wherever they were but maybe there could be a lottery ticket that went to education and then specifically you know maybe 
they could have aspects of it that went to communication disordered students. Exactly. <laughs> you know, got to think outside the box. Yeah. Well, to my mind, if we access Jordan's principle appropriately in this province and, and use those federal dollars, and we could have a lottery that would also go towards services for kids with disabilities, I think we could probably cover the costs. But that's, I mean, I'm not an accountant, so I don't know. Exactly. Until you know what you need. That's right. <laughs> okay. the dollar. There you go. Yeah. And then the the other uh, one we've talked about, Cheryl, is, you know, some uh, families through their private health care insurance have been able to ask, uh, sorry, access um, speech path services for their children. But, you know, this is always very limited and will never be at the level that they require and is not the best model. I mean, we, we really would like to see those children when they're at school and they're seen every day for just short periods of time. And, you know, you're not trying to practice like you practice piano lessons in the car on the way over to the, to your next session. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, those uh, those... Private insurers, and I don't know, maybe it's different in different places, but the ones that I've dealt with in Saskatchewan, they only really fund basically a maximum of four therapy sessions. Well, we know if, you know, you have 20 different sounds you need to work on, that those four sessions aren't going to get you anywhere. I I think, again, we were going to clarify, and, and I don't know whether we did find out the information exactly, but... Fairly recently, the government had come up with some specific dollars for children who had, whose, or for parents whose children had been identified as having autism spectrum oh, yes, disorders. That's correct. Yes. And they were given a certain amount of money. Did we clarify that that still exists? It does. It does still exist. And I guess the, the issue that parents are having difficulty with now that I just heard about on Wednesday from an SLP who's working in private therapy is the number, the volume of phone calls that she's getting. And she cannot see all of the kids that are phoning. So it's, it's fine to get the money, it's fine that the province is giving you $10,000 a year to access services, but if that service is just not, simply not available, that's not helpful. So that's where, you know, we need some government intervention or some broader intervention to create the positions so that those kids could be seen. So that if they're little pre-K students and they need the services, they can go to a place together and be seen in it by a group of speech pals who have right. established best practice programming for them. Right, yeah. All right, so how should this money be spent then, if we had it? So Exactly, exactly. And I think you and I, although maybe this isn't the order that other people would put their list in, this would be our wish list for spending. (laughs) And we started off with data collection and outcome measurement. So it is that universal screening. And again, the example we gave where a speech path went into school, screened kindergarten and grade one, and even if it ended up that all the schools only did that, you would have such valuable information. It would, and if you did the same standardized screening across the board, you would have those stats you need, and then from there you would be able to go on and and do pilot projects or let everybody kind of do what they've been doing and see what is the outcome of all these programs people are doing if you could get that collaboration going. So that's how we would spend the dollars to begin with. And the other thing we had said is it still 
we do believe needs to be an early intervention. So Absolutely, we would yes. definitely dip down into preschool, and we would really like to see a change in the preschool model. We don't think the services for preschool children is best practice, and we do think that you're missing the golden years. That's our view. That's our view, that. yes, exactly. <laughs> so we need that quality universal screening, and by universal it mean, needs to be across the province, so that we kind of know where the needs are, because the needs you know, in Yorkton or Rosetown might be different than the needs in La Ronge or North Battleford. So we need that. And then we need that multi-tiered service support system that we had talked about in one of our other podcasts so that we can have... Sorry, for those of you who don't know, it's just sort of a reiteration of RTI. It's an upgrade Mm -hmm. to RTI. So we need to have services for kids with, you know, mild disabilities or kids who need just a little bit of help. And then we need those intensive services for kids with those intensive needs. And then we get down to facilitation of best practice. And we need, again, we need best practice across the province so that we have that quality intervention with the the right amount of intensity and frequency. We need to get off of the consultative model. Yes, yes. allowed to do their jobs and do intervention yes absolutely and as far as some of the money being spent i think both cheryl and i would say somehow if there was a possibility uh, maybe it wouldn't be their full-time jobs but to have a team an slp leadership team within the province to start to create and and advocate and and set up a model communication disorder services for children in education we think the money would be well spent if you could get some people who had the the skills and the the abilities to look at the big picture and the other thing is the the money also could be spent on educating the existing leadership teams in educating them again about the critical aspect of the foundational skills in phono awareness and, and language that are causing the failures in literacy that are integrally linked to the lack of outcomes in what's happening in the province now. Particularly for, again, children who, who live in generational poverty and have all of the difficulties that are, are related to, to that and that cause communication disorders to begin with. So they're all linked together. And then it would also then be well spent if we could use some of the dollars to teach teachers as they are in university programs, with both practicing teachers, but also teachers who are in training in university. But not just the leadership, but how are we going to educate all the teachers and, and get them on board about understanding about foundational communication, oral communication skills. Another way we could spend some of the money would be, this would be lower down on the priority list, but would be in a, a prevention role. So I have very strong feelings about parenting, being in a consultative role in Saskatchewan as a speech-language pathologist, a lot of times you're being asked to train parents to do the therapy. Now, I don't think that parents can be trained (laughs) to do the therapy. Having been a parent, I know how difficult it is to work with your own child on something that's difficult for the child. So, I have issues with that. But and speech has just by the way have six or seven years of training in how to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's that. There's that. But I do think that parents can be trained to do those fundamental 
parenting things that will help prevent some of the communication issues that we see with kids. If they, if parents know that they need to talk with their child, interact with their child, sing, play, use lots of eye contact, parents need to stay off their phones, they need to engage physically in the moment with their child, pay attention to what the child is doing, all of those aspects of what I would call communication training part of parenting, those can be done. Now, can they be done once parents are already parents? Again, I would argue with that because once you're already a parent, you're sleep deprived, you have other issues that you're dealing with. But if you were to learn that, say, as a child in grade six, and you had, say, a whole year of parenting education or whatever you want to call it, real life education, where you could practice at a time, practice with children at a time when you're interested in babysitting and you get a chance to practice these skills, you're taught them and you get a chance to practice them as a teen or preteen, I think you would perhaps carry some of those skills over to when you're parenting. And at least, even if you didn't carry the skills over, at least you would know that they're important and maybe you would try to implement some of them. And another little aspect of the parent uh, education would be uh, just knowing when when a child has a problem, they have, say, a phonological disorder, speech sound problem, or they are a delayed in phonological awareness or their language development. It's it's that having time that the speech paths are allowed and have time to speak with parents about these disorders and the impact they will have on their learning. Another thing that would be great for Saskatchewan would be if we were to have an advocacy group. Right now, the provincial organization that has recently become the College of Speech and Language and audiology in Saskatchewan is a regulatory body. It's not an advocacy group. And if we had a formal advocacy group, I think maybe we would have a place where parents and and other people could come and say, you know, what about this? What's happening with this? What should be happening? And get that collective speech path voice pulled together so they would meet and talk and not just be grabbing little bits of information from their colleagues or on the net or, yeah. you know. Yeah, as d- just a place where we could share, share that best practice info. Yes, yes, for sure. And then we talk about building capacity. And one of the best ways I think that we can build capacity is in the schools with speech and language assistant training because speech and language assistants would be someone who has the time and hopefully the inclination and eventually the skills if we train them properly to work with these children on a daily basis and fill in those gaps because it doesn't always have to be a speech language pathologist if we have a quality program that's set up where a highly trained speech and language assistant is working and they don't have to be just working in the schools they could be working in daycares and preschools and those kinds of things the other and for those oh sorry who have haven't uh, heard our other podcasts we have a podcast on speech and language assistance if you're interested in yes. knowing more of our views on that or join that conversation yes and and just as an upcoming note we're gonna have be doing an interview with a speech and language assistant so you get to hear from their perspective what's going on as well and then the other thing for building capacity it would be with classroom teacher support So supporting teachers in their role and parent education. And that's that's different than the parent education that I was talking about before. This parent education would be for kids who already have a communication disorder. So helping to educate them on what this disorder means for their child and what are the various avenues to get either remediation, therapy, intervention, 
or some uh, assistive devices, some kind of compensatory technology or some kind of aspect that, a workaround where we could say, well, they're not able to do this, but we have an idea that would maybe compensate for that. And another area that we have talked about as far as how we would spend the money is potentially, even in the States, there are some pilot projects where they actually made the ability to be a good communicator a subject in school. And so you had to pass this area of, with these competencies before you finish high school. So uh, food for thought, for sure. Then I think some of the very best way to spend the money, and maybe it should have been further on up our list, is let's get some pilot projects going. Let's spend the money to do different interventions, maybe targeting the same difficulty, say uh, just pick one out of the air, phonological awareness or something, and just go, well, who has the best outcome? Somebody's using Hagerty, somebody's using uh, Hear Builder, somebody's using Chipper Chat, all these different programs and materials. And who had the best outcomes? How often were they seen? What size of group did they have? And what were the competencies they were trying to teach? And so then if you have that data, then the province could potentially say, we would prefer that speech paths use this program. You know, again, I don't know how, how well that would go over for some of you out there who are so passionate about your own programs. But yeah, that's what the, our conversation is about. Well, we have, to go then, with, we have to go with the evidence, right? If there is something that's really working, I think at the very least, we should be trying it. If, if it's working in one location and it's showing great outcomes, I think we have an obligation to the kids to at least try it. Yes, and I've had concerns, and you know, uh, I've definitely heard of people, you know, going to the States and taking really fun workshops and coming back all fired up and wanting to do interventions uh, for our kids in Saskatchewan, but we don't, the, the target population is not the same, and I've seen them come back with programs that mm. seem but they are above the pay grade of the little guys working for and they don't work yeah. so it's something to keep in mind yeah. so the last one we had on how we would spend our money Cheryl was um, throwing out there again would we spend our money on potentially setting up a university program in Saskatchewan to train SLPs and you know it certainly it should be on the list we think for discussion and, and what people really think I think uh, it should be on the list I would put it quite far down the list as of right now because again there are no vacancies in schools for speech language pathologists right now so if we had a program that was training say 20 speech language pathologists a year as master's level students and they were coming out of the program where would these students go like where would these graduates go they wouldn't have a place in Saskatchewan to practice unless they were going to set up a private practice and that's very difficult for a new grad. And they shouldn't be doing it. They, no. They really should No. Be, yeah. You need and, to... And, and ethically, yeah. they shouldn't be. The other part of that is is the existing jobs in health. And again, the myth of the speech path shortage uh, podcast, you want to hear that one maybe. But it's basically the jobs are not feasible and no one wants the jobs. So the people who are offering those jobs need to uh, you know, look at the caseload and the and the wages and the benefits and, and take a look because you're not competitive and people don't want them. So, That's a little harsh, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, no, it, it is, <laughs> but it's true though. It's true. I mean, obviously it's true. 
So the question to our listeners is, how do we collectively gather the data to demonstrate the needs and the subsequent resources that are required for children with communication disorders in Saskatchewan? Do you think that universal screening is possible? That's my opinion. I do, but maybe people out there have other ideas. Why or why not do you think that? How do we do this for our preschool population? Do you think, as I do, that JP funding could be used to develop provincial standards for our First Nations children and then extend those to other non-Aboriginal children also affected by generational poverty? And maybe out there, I'd love to hear if somebody else can think of some other funding sources that we haven't touched on today. And how do you, how would you prioritize? We have our prioritizing, prior, prioritized list. How would you prioritize? We really would like you to join the conversation. For Let's Talk Talking, I'm Cheryl. And I'm Sherry. Let's, Let's talk. talk.